This is hell. The planet's on fire, and this is hell. Not that it seems we care all that much about the world falling apart around us or burning. It's weird, considering the many problems we are facing today, long-term problems that will not only have an impact, a huge impact on our own lives, but the lives of generations who will follow us, our children and grandchildren, who we claim we love and we swear we would do anything for them, that is, except doing anything about curbing the effects of climate change, protesting the countless numbers of violent acts that global warming has caused, or the root causes of extreme weather that already displaced millions. In fact, it would seem the system that the West prides itself in defending, the system the global North has imposed on the entire planet, the system that's doing so much damage to the planet and the people who live on it, that's us, it would seem that with increasing poverty and inequality and more and more wealth going to fewer and fewer people with exploitation rampant all in the name of maximizing profits at any and all costs, our glorious capitalism doesn't seem to do that great of a job of providing for people or the planet. Yet for whatever reason, the plan to respond to climate change is to make certain the status quo remains, that little changes and the market is allowed to continue to make all of our life decisions based on nothing more than their bottom line. That's right, the plan is to not change the way we act, not change what we did to contribute to and cause global warming. Why? Because the IPCC, the Inter Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, believes, hell, they know human beings are resilient. We can tolerate, put up with a lot, and we will endure whatever it takes in order to save precious capitalism and the status quo, the minority who actually benefit from this humanity-destroying system. In a few moments, we'll discuss the frightening world of exhaustion and resilience when we have the return of social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury, who posted the Baffler magazine article Sick and Tired Against Resilience, which is an excerpt from the book, forthcoming book, out next month by uh, Repeater Books, called The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World. Ajay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, Social Research, where we have a lot of listeners, and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. He has written for The Guardian, The Nation, N Plus One, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. Ajay was on the show back in June 2020, when we still did not have a COVID-19 vaccine. He was on back then to talk about another Baffler article he'd written, we're not in this together. There is no univer universal politics of climate change. Ajay is the executive director, as I was saying, of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. You can follow Ajay on Twitter at materialist underscore Jew. That's materialist underscore Jew. Find out more about the Brooklyn Institute at thebrooklyninstitute.com. Follow the Brooklyn Institute on Twitter at B-K-L-Y-N Institute. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? How was your weekend? I'm well. Uh, my folks were visiting for the weekend. They're still around for a few more days. It's been a lovely hang time. 
Very cool. Right before you have to go back to teaching classes too, right? Oh, it's uh, right during. Uh, oh, your class. first week. Yep, it's uh, week two right now. So, do anything special with your folks? Uh, pretty pretty chill week so far. We went out to Kalo for some Italian, Sweet. and uh, we went down to Nangha yesterday for wow. some folks. So, yeah. Wow. Pretty good. That's always great when people come into town because you eat really well. I know. It's the best part of it. Uh, my weekend was uh, like the week that preceded it, a blur. But everything is kind of a blur this time of year. The blurry time of year, if you will, because we just came out of the busiest holiday season of the year with four federal holidays in the span of less than two months. And other than President's Day, which only bankers celebrate, I don't think we have another national holiday until Memorial Day which is over four months from now. Four holidays in less than two months, and then only one in the next four. In fact, we have four holidays from late November until mid-January, and the rest of the year, the other eight months of the year, we only have four national holidays, and that includes freaking President's Day, which nobody celebrates but bankers. This is also the blurry part of the year nowadays since the COVID-19 outbreak. As variants pop up this time of year, as does RSV now and the flu, we always have to deal with. So going to public spaces or having people over because it's too cold out to hang outside. With so many viruses nowadays, socializing can be nerve-wracking. So for me, it's the blurry time of year when one day just kind of blurs and the next one week seems like the one before it and the week that is upcoming doesn't seem that different as we get back into the swing of things, as it's called, because this is hell. But more important than the blurriness of the season, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is a real toughie, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can give us your answer to this week's question from hell. And we will read your responses on air. All you have to do is post your answer under the announcement of this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole, which is not as throttled by Facebook as our regular page is. Or you can direct message it to us via X at This Is Hell Radio, which is also heavily throttled as we have over 8,000 followers yet only a hundred or so can actually see any of our posts or you can leave your answer in our discord community or on our patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and will has this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure is the only real hangover cure and that is time. Last week, USA, UCLAHealth.org had an Ask the Doctors column headlined, Time is the Best Cure for a Hangover. A reader asks internal medicine doctors Eve M. Glazier and Elizabeth Coe, is there a cure? The doctors respond by writing, as for whether science has come up with a hangover cure, the answer is not yet. You wouldn't know that from uh, the astonishing and ever-expanding array of hangover products that claim to help suffering drinkers. Unfortunately, the only real cure for a hangover is time. Typically 24 hours or more. I've been feeling the more the older I get as well. Yeah, definitely. Man. Uh, while waiting that out, you can take steps to manage the symptoms. 
This includes rest, antacids to calm the stomach, complex carbs to boost low blood sugar, and plenty of water and other non-alcoholic fluids for hydration. Headache can be eased with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. However, never take Tylenol during or right after drinking, as when mixed with alcohol, liver damage is possible. And ignore advice that urges easing a hangover with an alcoholic drink. The boost it may give is temporary and merely lengthens the time to a genuine recovery. That makes this week's hangover cure. There is no cure for a hangover but time. And 24 hours or more. I can completely second that. Unless you just stay stoned the whole time. (laughs) There's that too. Which is a really good hangover cure, actually. We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Luke at something called Collective Mess in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Luke writes, good morning, Chuck. Relatively new listener here. My wife and I run Collective Mess, a fledgling 501c3 nonprofit organization providing free vegan meals to anyone that is hungry with no questions asked and no religious prerequisites. Allow me a brief aside, Luke writes. Mandating participation in a religious service or even a prayer before a meal to those who are hungry is absolutely effing hypocritical and antithetical to any religion whose myths still manage to hold sway over humanity. Luke continues, we are working to establish a proper vegan diner operating on a participation model, donations of time, money, or produce in exchange for a meal in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I really appreciate your show and your constant reminders that most or all or of our root societal problems are a necessary function of capitalism. You may well have covered this in previous episodes that I haven't gotten to yet, but I'd love to hear some interviews about food insecurity, now more accurately called food apartheid, coined by Karen Washington, who I would love to hear on your show. Or food is a right, uh, food is a human right as an issue. Uh, you could talk to Michael Fakhri, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, would be another great guest. And maybe even veganism is a topic. I know you've done some interviews, episodes on this, but Peter Singer would be phenomenal to hear. I don't mean to self-aggrandize or put myself on level with the aforementioned, but I'd also be happy to make a plug for Collective Mess to raise awareness of both these issues and our small nonprofit organization if there were ever an opportunity. The world is an effing wreck, and I have little to no faith in humanity. But th- there, here we are doing what we can to make a tangible difference, and it would be an honor if this is how would throw a little of its weight into our corner and support us. Thanks for doing what you do, Chuck. It's been such a relief to hear another voice of reason amidst the noise. I don't know about me being a voice of reason. Cheers, Luke. So thanks for the kind words, Luke. Really appreciate it. What you what it's what you're doing it sounds absolutely amazing i too have always been turned off by the religious prerequisite the hungry have to go through to get a meal from those who claim they are practicing their faith by withholding food and till some sort of indoctrination i've gone through that before when i was homeless and going to uh, free meals in churches and having to have to sit through some sort of prayer service and it's really demeaning And Luke, thanks for what you are doing in Kalamazoo, Michigan. However, I don't have any contact information for Kalamazoo's Collective Mess, nor do I know how you can find out more about what Luke and Collective Mess are doing. 
So we've contacted them and are waiting to hear back to find out exactly how to help out Luke with his collective mess. Coming up, resilience in the face of climate change means even more misery for all of us. Will has our Patreon subscribers answers to this week's question from hell. We will tell you what happened on last week's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll have this week in rotten history from Ronaldo Magaldi. We will also tell you who we have confirmed as guests for the rest of the week. And yes, the rest of this week's guests are actually confirmed. We'll also tell you what's happening with Sebastian Vupper on The Past Inside the Present, which is going to be happening at the end of this week's shows, and on tomorrow's show with Jeff Dorchin and The Moment of Truth. What is Jeff talking about during The Moment of Truth tomorrow? Jeff recalls the trauma of reliving the trauma of revisiting the trauma queen. (laughs) The future. (laughs) The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And the future used to be one where we didn't just sit back and watch climate change run its course. The future was supposed to be about changing our habits and creating a new world that didn't depend upon extracting what it can from the planet at any and all costs of the environment and the humans who depend upon the environment for their survival. The future was supposed to be about humanity changing in light of climate change. But guess what? The planet turns out is to do nothing at all and do nothing happily because doing nothing would save the status quo and capitalism which it is believed we will all gladly sacrifice our lives and later generations to save the 1% in the system that made them that way. I mean, why change just because the climate is returning to this is hell is social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Sick and Tired Against Resilience, which is an excerpt from his upcoming book that's being published by Repeater Books, The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World. Welcome back to This is Hell, Jay. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's always great to have you on the show. We really enjoyed our conversation with you back in June of 2020, and Mm -hmm. this article is absolutely outstanding. I'm going to just read it. Oh, thanks. I just want to read a tiny excerpt here at the beginning. You write that in 1971, Aaron Aaron Antonovsky, an Israeli medical sociologist, led a small team uh, conducting a survey with over a thousand participants concerning how women cope with the effects of menopause. A question on the survey asked whether the women were concentration camp survivors. In reviewing his findings, Antonovsky was astonished. He had discovered that what would prove foundational not only to his career, but to an entire new field of research. Of the 287 women who reported that they had survived the camps, over two-thirds qualified in the category of breakdown, still suffering from the horrors as he turned it. Unsurprisingly, this was not a vastly higher number than for the women who had not experienced the camps. Then you quote Antonovsky saying, what is, however, of greater fascination and of human and scientific import is the fact that a not inconsiderable number of concentration camp survivors were found to be well adopted. This came, uh, leads to his idea that he later calls salutogenesis, but what he had really discovered is what, as you write, uh, was what we now call resilience. Was resilience something that was believed anybody was capable of doing, that anyone had the access to resources, whether they are material or emotional, to have resilience? Was it understood that this was an innate ability that all people could have and achieve? That's a great question. Um, So the history of the term, so I go through the history of the term in the, later in the the chapter that this is excerpted from. Um, 
and you know, I should probably say a few things to put it in context, right? The the book overall is is this sort of soup to nuts, who, what, where, why, when, how, who, I did who twice, oh wait, um, for a politics of climate change. And this is the section that introduces the who. And the resilience question is really fascinating because, you know, prior to about, I'm going to have to rough I'm going to have to do sort of rough uh, numbers here. But like prior to about like, I'd say 1950, um, resilience was a term that, uh, and resiliency, resilient, whatever, was a term that was like mostly used in things like metallurgy, right? Um, Like how much pressure can I apply to a piece of metal, you know, before it breaks, that kind of thing, right? Um, And it enters into common parlance through through two not entirely separated channels. One is uh, unsurprisingly ecological, right? It's about ecosystems and how they work. Um, And the other is this sort of psychological, social psychological model. Um, And the two get kind of blurred uh, as we approach the contemporary moment um, such that um, certain things that are actually relatively true about resilience in the ecological setting are then sort of transferred into uh, social thought, um, not sort of remembering that, right, uh, the social world is ever so slightly more, and this is complicated, I don't want to get too far into it, but right, right the social world is ever, is, is, a, is like a dynamic, changeable uh, uh, universe that is not set in stone by like the laws of uh, physics. It cannot like it cannot like break out of those laws, but it has a different set of dynamics than natural ecosystems. And the thing that's so fascinating about the Antonovsky case, and I also talk about um, Emmy Werner uh, and, and uh, oh god, I forgot her name, her writing partner, who have this very 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 famous case in uh, Hawaii where they studied sort of like what we would now call at-risk youth, and this is mostly Native Hawaiians and um, Asian immigrants. Uh, and, and they were like, oh, it's a very similar story. In fact, they, and they quote Antonov, uh, she quotes Antonovsky in, in, in her like, report, where she's like, yeah, look, like three quarters of these kids are totally fucked, but one quarter aren't. And what starts to develop in that sort of corner of mainstream psychology, and these are really, uh, Antonovsky was not a psychologist, but his his wife was. Um, Werner was a psychologist. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of other folks, if people are interested, people like Norman Garmezi, people who are not, uh, I can't remember all their names, but like, these are not like, I think, household names. Maybe maybe murder is, but like what they start to develop are this uh, set of ideas that intrinsically, or with some sort of what's the word, you know, m- you know, some nature, some nurture, but mostly nature, um, that people could have these uh, psychological or internal dispositions to just sort of get through anything the world could throw at them. And this really fascinated these researchers um, and gets taken up uh, very strongly by later thinkers um, who are very influential in the sort of explosion of the concept of resilience in its um, social 
application, which really is actually very recent. I think I go over it in, in that section, or certainly in the book. I can't remember if it, it got cut in the excerpt or not. But right, it sort of goes from this like very sort of minor concept. And then as people are starting to think more ecologically with climate change and things like this, it those all those definitions sort of start blurring together. And you get this like 80, per, like, I don't know, 80,000, it like jumps from basically a term that is like the most minor scientific jargon into this word that right now you could like go, you know, on Google and find 8 billion articles about your resilience, your friends' resilience, your family's resilience, your community's resilience. And all of those uh, are really, uh, not all, but so many of those are actually building off this initial set of building blocks, which is like, oh, you can get punched in the gut <laughs> uh, and get up and walk away, which is true. Um, but it sort of starts to, especially uh, as it takes on a life of its own, uh, and life of its own is unfair here, as it gets into the hand of people who are using this for policy and using this politically and thinking about um, even this sort of in economic terms and all kinds of stuff, it becomes, oh, people don't need um, a lot of external resources. If, if, or the external resources they need are to develop these internal resources as opposed to just like ordinary stuff. All these things, that, uh, all these people I mentioned at the top of the chapter, people like Antonovsky, people like Werner, they all initially came from a much, uh, from a, school of psychology that was basically saying yeah like it's it's like what, what's the old joke the social science journal duh like they're like yes if you give material benefits material support to young mothers to um people facing traumatic situations this that and the other um they will likely do better than not and all of their findings supported this um but what happens with the work is it becomes much ever more narrowly focused on how little people need to get by and how much it almost like ironically in the name of sort of agency, um, we need to like nurture that, that people have to be positive. They must be optimistic. They must uh, adhere to the idea that the world makes sense. They, they like, it becomes this set of imperatives that people should follow. And, um, and even to this day, and again, this is not meant to be like a ha-ha, gotcha, fuck you. Um, you know, very good people, very well-intentioned people, particularly in the climate space, will talk about resilience as uh, an ideal because I think they're often thinking about like real things, right? Like how much flooding can a coastal area take, right? Um, uh, is, the, is a certain city design uh, going to be able to withstand a storm surge? It, you know, I'm using these two examples, I think, just because they're on my mind. Uh, you know, uh, how, to, how to deal with a certain, what kind of building structures can deal with a, a sudden wildfire? These are great questions, right? But all of a sudden, they start getting applied and thought about through individuals and communities such that it, it's like, oh, um, how much... Uh, what's the word, social deprivation and ecological devastation can people survive and bounce back from? And you'll, you'll find, it actually blew my mind as I was doing research for this book for so long, like 
many, again, very well-intentioned, good people. I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, uh, attack them uh, or anything like this being like, Oh yeah. If you look at this case study of this village in uh, I don't know, Bangladesh, like this one person was able to bounce back from the, you know, from the flooding. Uh, but this person was not. And therefore, let's study their psychological differences as opposed to why is there flooding? Why is the infrastructure the way it is? Uh, maybe we shouldn't be asking people to deal with, you know, catastrophic, like literally like what we used to call acts of God on a daily basis, things of this nature, because that gets conveniently bracketed out once I've just said, and this does in fact go all the way back to Antonovsky where you started, that these things are perfectly quote unquote natural. When I think at this point in, in, in climate change, right? It's not something that's coming in the future, it's right now. We know that they are not natural, right? We know that they are caused and perturbed by um, certain forms, not all human activity, certain forms of human activity, particularly as you noted in your introduction, those uh, involved with maintaining capitalism as we know it. Um, and that they could be prevented both through mitigation efforts, i.e. stopping um, further uh, uh, climate change, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about uh, ocean acidification, whether we're talking about runoff, all kinds of problems, right? Um, whether we're talking about things like that, or whether we're talking about the barriers to adaptation, the inequalities, um, all the kinds of stuff that these communities could be doing if we weren't thinking about them as like this hilarious category. And by the way, this is not like we think we, us, them, that kind of thing. Like people in these places are already ex uh, expressing this, this. And this is true in the United States as well. We're like, I don't know if I need to be told how to recover from like the soot in my area or like like minor radiation, like, like I don't know, know if I need to be told to recover from that as much as I would really, really need those things to not be happening. Right, exactly. It, it's <laughs> it is so. Is is resilience then? Is it our simply our capacity to put up with misery? Does resilience turn the conversation from one that is no longer about avoiding misery, stopping misery from happening? but about tolerating it, even normalizing a miserable existence. Yes. Is the IPCC, are they trying to determine how much misery we can take? And is that why it seems like nothing is being done about climate change? Because the IPCC and many academics are focused not on avoiding misery, but tolerating it. I mean, that's a really interesting question as well. I mean. One of the reasons I'm so cautious and I use so many caveats about the terms and even with the IPCC is because a lot of the people involved with, you know, IPCC report, reports, which I talk about in that, in that excerpt and more in depth in the book, um, actually are very much aware of the kinds of problems that I am talking about here. Um, and if actually the IPCC has tried to reform its definition of resilient several times, I don't know how successful it is. And of course, people know that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of non-scientific hands in that jar, if you will, if you can mix metaphors or whatever. Um, and quite a lot of what people would like to say 
is often sort of filtered through both governments and and non and sorry sorry and um, and you know private enterprise uh, just being like yeah you can't say that yeah you can't say that yeah you can't say that um, and some of those uses of resilience are real but yes when we get to the world of social policy when we get to the world of of, of of governance we get the world of politics for in this world for a whole bunch of folks resilience is exactly what you describe and you know in that piece and in that excerpt from the book i uh i i say it's the the, the policymakers love the, the concept of resilience. Why? Because it basically takes the onus off them. They're like, sweet. And this isn't even in people at the top. This is often just sort of like, imagine you're sort of classic apparatchnik. It's just like, sweet. I can balance this budget because all I got to do, I can rip out all this material goods and put a bunch of pamphlets in about how your like mindfulness will help you get through the next hurricane. And my job is done. Um, and it gets a little bit more gnarly from that. But um to sort of swing back around, yes, like in many ways, the way resilience is used, I would say less in things like IPCC reports where they're, they're trying, they're trying their best. Um, more like if you see the way resilience is used in like think tanks, in the way it's used in popular culture, in the way it's used in the media, um, yourself excluded, uh, you know, mass media, um, <laughs> you know, like, the way it's used in the media, yes, it almost always is presented as this, right? I think I talk about in that piece, like these sort of two ideal types, right, that come out of Antonovsky and Werner, right? One is the like, right, the camp survivor, which is just so horrifying to even think about. And similarly, this uh, the term that Werner coins for... Um, for these children in Hawaii is vulnerable, but invincible, right? And you can actually just see that in like on a bumper sticker, you just imagine that, right? It's so easy because it fits so well into the ways, and the, by the way, these people were working well before what we now call the neoliberal era, but you can see so well how that would get, those ideas would get picked up and broadcast as we proceed step-by-step step into a more crisis-ridden world. You also point out that resilience is about risk shifting, minimum uh, yes. resource levels, and bouncing forward. Resilience emphasizes some of the stickiest, socially destructive ideals of our time, the hardy survivor, the endlessly flexible and adaptable worker, and the self-reliant community, all of whom continue to function within even the most corrosive socio-ecological conditions and depriva deprivations. So... Is resilience about preserving the most climate change causing aspects that society has to offer, the aspects of society that played a role in causing climate change and then oh, began yes. incapable of responding to it in a timely fashion, fashion that made the climate a priority? Is it about preserving not only capitalism and the status quo, but a myth of the hardy survivor, the endlessly flexible and adaptable worker? and the self-reliant yes. community? I mean, I wouldn't be, yeah, it's, a, it's a, like another great question. And I wouldn't be much of a dialectical thinker if I wasn't say, wouldn't say yes, <laughs> right? Yes to both. Um, so on the one hand, yes, I, I love that you brought the risk question in here um, because that is the part of it that is probably closest 
to the economic and political ideals that people are familiar with, with or uh, with things like finance, uh, financialization, uh, with things like insurance, with all kinds of different aspects of modern society where risk has become the operative term. Um, and risk shifting when I'm using, I'm actually sort of playing between disciplines here, right? So I'm borrowing this term largely from the financialization literature, um, but, right, uh, it is in fact being applied here socially, right? Um, the classic model for this, right, is the, I mean, the way in which I think a lot of people talk about it, even popularly today, right, is things like, is the sort of like the privatization of benefits or the privatization of profits, right? Uh, and the socialization of, of ills or problems, right? Uh, and risk shifting here is exactly that, right? So uh, if I am generating a bunch of profit, uh, sorry, if I am engaging in uh some form of enterprise and generating a huge amount of profit that creates huge externalities and as the lingo goes then i tr uh it is to my personal you know self-interested rational benefit to make sure that those externalities are born elsewhere and what better than oh look there are these vulnerable invincible people over here um who can absorb that and if they don't right? It's their fault, right? If they don't, then they weren't really up to stuff. They weren't really trying and they weren't really, um, they weren't good, positive people. They were sort of these kinds of negative Nancys who we don't want those people around. You can see how the logic sort of unfolds. Um, and it's a pretty horrifying logic. And in fact, it is not one that we have to think about. You know, I was listening to your intro in terms of like grandchildren and, and children and grandchildren. It's something that happening to people right now, which is a really core part of, of my whole book's argument, which is that we got to stop thinking about climate change as a future problem. It is a thing that is happening in this moment right now. People are being violently just having their lives ruined, killed, displaced, as you mentioned displacement in your intro, um, constantly, and, and are being told, well, kind of deal with it, or here are some minor measures. And I think that's the other thing. You mentioned that I was on a couple of years ago for the We're Not Missed Together, and one of the key pieces there wasn't uh, simply that, you know, it's uh, as what, like eco-socialism or barbarism? No, it's kind of like we have, like there's a slow plan to deal with climate change. That's the sort of Bill Gates version, right? Like, where it's like, yeah, two degrees, three degrees, it's all, it's all gravy, it'll be fine. And they're like, yeah, it could hit some tipping points, but we'll be able to do it. It's a much slower process. Yeah, maybe a billion people get displaced. Let's not worry about that too hard. But it's all like it's, it's it's something versus nothing. It's two different somethings, right? Most people in the world, including most people in the north, because I think often we think uh, it is true that climate uh, impacts will already and will further impact uh, the south and uh, I, sort of ironically, right, the places that have least contributed to um, climate climactic problems. But this stuff is hitting places like the United States all the time, right? Um, 
you have you know, inland hurricanes destroying farms, you have wildfires, and that's just sticking with, uh, we have all kinds of coastal flooding, all kinds of uh, bizarre weather patterns. And, you know, this stuff, is, people notice this. It's not like rock, you know, the numbers on denial have basically fallen through the floor. Um, so like people do notice this even in, in wealthy countries. And the sort of attraction of resilience to policymakers is really this like, oh my God, here is this brilliant, actually kind of progressive sounding thing that fits really well with that slow model, right? It sounds so good, right? As that I can do like the 2.5, the three, the 3.5, like as if these things don't have any meaning in the world, which they do, by the way. Um, but right, like if I can do that and say, okay, here are my six resilience policies. Well, I have set up a lovely situation for the preservation of existing wealth and power. And in the meantime, I have set up a sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, a sort of excuse. Um, there's, there's a good, a better Latin phrase for it, but it's escaping my mind at the moment, right? I've set up an excuse for, and, and a policy for how to deal with everyone else. And I don't want everyone to die. This is me speaking in the voice of the system, I guess. I don't want everyone to die. But if a bunch of people do, and we only we already have more workers than we need, we already have more of this, well, all the better. Um, and furthermore, I can make a lot of money on this. I can do I can drive through a lot of security on this. I can really push through a successful scenario. And and this to me is very important when we're thinking about something like resilience or when we're thinking about something like risk shifting. We are, always have to be remembering that it's not no climate action and some climate action. It's whose version of climate action, right? Is it the version of climate action that leads towards eco-apartheid? Or is it the climate action that leads to, as I, I quote Gilmore in that piece, right? Organized abandonment, which is just her definition of racism, right? Or is it a, a mode of mitigation and adaptation, right? That leads to flourishing, prosperity for the vast majority of people on earth, including the vast majority of people in the global north. So, uh, Jay, uh Often, when we would have people talking about climate change on the show, at the end of the interview, when I asked the question from hell, I would ask them, is it true of what all the climate change denialists or uh, people out on Fox News, of what they say about climate change, that it's just a huge socialist or communist plot? And, <laughs> and they all laughed about it. And then they would all say, well, yeah, it is. I mean, because of the response that we're going to have to make to climate change. So they all they all joked about it, but they all agreed. Yeah, I guess it kind of is, but it isn't really a plot. It's not a conspiracy. It's the way that we are. We must respond to climate change. So is that the goal of the people who are writing? Or not, I'm not saying everybody at the IPCC. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement. Is, the, <laughs> is, is that their secret agenda? <laughs> no, no. Is, is, is the goal to make certain that at this point, when it comes to resilience, to make certain that that does not happen is the major goal, it seems right now, of climate change, uh, many of the climate change people right now, to make certain that we don't have a socialist or communist response. To uh, I see change. what you mean. I mean, this is really fascinating to me um, on a couple of levels. Uh, one, uh, 
I've written about this both in my book and, and academically in a more sort of formal manner. Um, a lot of people who enter into the climate sciences, and I mean this on the natural science side, but I've seen it happen also on the social science side, but I think it's some, in many ways more interesting on the natural science side, come in with very few, um, I mean, I know very little about their politics, but don't seem to be like fire-breathing Marxists or communists or socialists uh, when they enter you know, the field of study. And then as they progress, and I've seen this, I talk about this in the book, I talk about this all the time, actually, right? Uh, you know, even like business school professors, uh, uh, all kinds of regular folks, right? I teach working adults from, right? So I'm constantly interacting with people from all kinds of uh, walks of life. But you see this in the literature, uh, everywhere from natural scientists to even like business folks who are like, oh shit, <laughs> like uh, who did not enter, you know, you know, quoting Capital Volume 1 from memory are all of a sudden like, oh, I don't see how to square our economic system with some, but as it stands, does it mean, it does not necessarily mean socialism or, or, or bust, but it does mean our version of capitalism is very, 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 very bad. And in fact, must be like hemmed in very strongly, very quickly. Um, so I see people coming to that conclusion uh, from places where you wouldn't expect it. Um, and of course, you also get it from a very, very good Marxist thinkers. I'm just I, off the top of my head, people, uh, uh, people like Koei Saito has a great new book out, uh, uses a different method than, than I do, but arrives to a very similar conclusion. And the thing that I think is uh, so important here is, right, um, Oh my God, I think I lost my place, my bad. Uh, the thing that is so important here is yes, like what's the line? I think it's Naomi Klein's line, right? There, uh, there is a like green politics is like green on the outside and red on the inside. I think I use a similar joke in, in my book. Um, and there is like a, 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 a smidge of truth to that, but it's not the truth of like smuggling it in by accident. I think the IP or smuggling it in as like this like covert secret, like, like conspiracy. Uh, and I think the IPCC is a wonderful place to look at this, right? I, I don't think like most of the people who, uh, who are like lead authors, headline authors, um, are not necessarily the most like politically radical people on the planet. And furthermore, most of them are very fastidious about keeping their political views outside of their research insofar as that is possible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yes, if you sort of break through the headline statements and those kinds of documents and start reading about the things they're like, yeah, we should probably do this. Yeah, we should probably do this. Yeah, we should probably do this. All of a sudden you're like, well, those aren't things that are really possible. And they will not say this. In fact, there's actually been fights in the IPCC and, and the organizations that surrounds it um, about what they can and cannot say, because it's fairly clear when you start reading this stuff, you're like, there's no way in hell we're ever getting that through unregulated capitalism. We're not getting that through a, a world in which we have basically set up a complete freedom for the flow of capital and so many restrictions on the flows of people. You know, we're never going to get 
to the kinds of recommendations and ideal scenarios that are dictated there because they're not profitable. So it sort of is the underlying, I would say it's an underlying um, conclusion that one would draw from reading these things. It's one that I certainly drew, um, but it is also, um, sorry, it, it, is, it is both there as a sort of, yeah, underlying conclusion, um, but it's not a conspiracy. It's not that everyone's trying to sneak this in. It's just unavoidable. And then you, in, when you encounter the, oh, it is avoidable. We have, we'll have this technological miracle. The market will deliver. This is the new one, right? Oh, look how the price of, of photovoltaic is falling. The market will solve the problem. No, the market will not solve the problem. Jesus Christ, the price of photovoltaic and it's, and it's, and it's, um, upkeep is in fact very cheap it's very efficient it works great uh the chinese have been developing a huge amount of stuff on this and batteries all kinds of crazy stuff um the problem for fossil fuel companies and many others uh it who sort of dominate the global market is simply you're not going to make as much money off that you're not going to make money off that much money off that you're not going to make much money as much money if you tighten and slow down production networks, you're not gonna make as much money if you instill the kinds of social mechanisms that again, non-socialist writers will be like, yeah, we probably kind of have to do this um, uh, to do decent climate mitigation adaptation. Well, if you start doing those measures, yeah, it's, that's gonna eat into profits too. And pretty soon you're looking at real tight margins, if even not negative margins in many, many, many fields. You quote cultural theorist and scholar Lauren Berlant uh, uh, about yes. her cruel uh, theory on cruel optimism. She writes an attachment to resilience effectively pre prevents us as individuals and collectively from going there, here resilience becomes a symptom of the loss of the capacity to imagine and do otherwise, and cruelty is one of the more politically cautious names for such a condition. Is the point of resilience then to undermine imagination? Is resilience an extension of there is no alternative, or even That's great. at least it's better than it used to be and things are getting better if slowly? Yeah, I mean... Berlant, yeah, Berlant's super important for my thinking. They, uh, also, they, they, before they died, they were, they were a they now, uh, non-binary. Um, but one of the arguments that, that they make is this very famous one about cruel optimism, which a lot of folks sort of, I think, either approach as a kind of radically new affect theory kind of thing or a radically old sort of false consciousness thing. And... Instead, cruel optimism is such a good framework for thinking about resilience, thinking about climate change even more broadly, because right, her definition, sorry, oh, now I'm doing it. Their definition of what cruel optimism is, is when you engage in something you know will be an impediment to your flourishing, but you sort of can't get around that conventional, what's the phrase she uses? Yeah, conventional good life fantasy, right? So like, I know X, Y, and Z don't work, but I try anyway, because I'm still trying to get to that brass ring, right? And so much of the resilience sort of discourse does 
uh, speaking of shifting, it does sort of do this political imagination shift as well, where instead of me being like, okay, my end goal is the erection or the establishment, the building of political forces um, that could actually achieve genuine mitigation and adaptation for the vast majority of humans on Earth. Um, and instead, my end goal becomes, am I able to survive? Am I one of the good ones? Um, and ironically, I, I see this sometimes even in activist communities, and I totally get it because uh, activism is very depleting. It's very, you know, to use my buzzword, right? It's very exhausting. Um, life in the modern world for most people is very exhausting, something I go through later in that chapter. Um, and yes, so like all of a sudden, instead of my end goal being like, well, shit, maybe it, my, well, we can still do things about this. That's the other side of that sort of Bill Gates universe, right? It's like, yeah, the stuff we can do, we can do. It's this tech stuff. It's going to come over the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, it's, we're going to blow past all of what we have defined as our threshold limits, which you aren't even supposed to approach, as the literature points out, over and over again. We're just going to blow past that. It's called overshoot. Then we're going to like claw it back using some magic tech that doesn't actually exist. And right. And in the meantime, you over here who are saying, oh, change the world, change the system, right? Again, a lot of people who are saying this stuff, not radical socialists, not Marxists, not even not all self-identified on the far left or anything like that. If you, there's, all of a sudden you have a really great argument. You'd be like, oh, those people are fruitcakes. Those people are nut jobs. They're trying to be disruptive and unconstructive. Meanwhile, there are practical things they could be doing to make themselves resilient. And all of a sudden your eye starts shifting. You, you take your eye off the ball, right? Um, and it, uh, instead of being like, oh, yeah, I want those things. I want the faster transition. I want the more uh, comprehensive one that is genuinely sustainable. And instead, you're like, how long can, my, can I persist? How long can my group persist? Now, those are really important questions, but it does, in fact, then often become a sort of like a defeatist position, right? Even in its most salutary terms, like how can I help this my community? How can I help this community? How can I do the X, Y, and Z? It really just becomes, well, I'm assuming that we're never going to do mass mitigation and mass adaptation. I'm giving up on that project. I'm giving up on the political project. I'm giving up on the social project. I am going to instead sort of think in this very dystopian, very isolated, very individualized way that is encouraged through quite a lot of, especially the psychological and sort of like, I, I borrow someone else's term in there, the great literature, which is that sort of think tank, reports, et cetera, et cetera, literature. You write that this life, this civilization is above all exhausting. Business as usual <laughs> promises only to accelerate your and this world's exhaustion. It can afford to take a leisurely piecemeal approach. Neither you nor the world nor this world can afford that. Neither can you nor this world wait for the revolution. Neither you nor this world can abide by liberal admonitions to propriety, to civility, to patience or 
compromise. Exhaustion is not some rhetorical gesture, discursive fiction, or new theoretical fantasy. Exhaustion outlines the historical block, the mass political subject of this conjuncture. Is the epidemic of loneliness and record numbers of suicides here in the United States and elsewhere, are these all signs of more than even loneliness? Are we suffering from an epidemic of exhaustion as capitalism buys more and more of our time for less and less through growing inequality, poverty, and more and more wealth going to the very few? Are we seeing, is it a mistake to see this as as an epidemic of loneliness? Should we be viewing this as an epidemic of exhaustion or do you see the two connected? I see, so when I talk about exhaustion, it's really, uh, I'm so glad you asked this. This is really, again, a fascinating question. And I can't remember, I feel like we, did we also do an episode on my piece on the extractive circuit? Uh, Yeah, I I think we did. I think we did. Which, like the subtitle was like exhaustion at the end of growth or something like that, right? Um, And that is the sort of, a a sort of, a sort of short snippet of the second chapter of the book, which outlies sort of how the global economy, how uh, capitalism as we know it, functions um, in a sort of full, not just economic, but socio-ecological portrait that I also tell through sort of uh, individual cases uh, or these sort of like, again, sort of archetypes or ideal types that I then trace through the system and see how it works. Um, and yes, when I talk about these things, you know, I'd say sites of exploitation, sites of, of uh, expropriation, sites of extraction are also sites of exhaustion or zones of exhaustion, right? Um, what I mean by this, I use exhaustion very capaciously. So I mean this literally sometimes, right? Uh, burnout, uh, physical injury, um, uh, mental illness disease, things like that, right? You mentioned, by the way, at the, at the right at the top of the show, like something about like COVID variants, right? Um, uh, and how it's like nerve wracking, right? To be going out into the world with all these variants with RSV and things like this. Well, A, those are also, right? Climactic uh, phenomena, right? Uh, COVID is a zoonotic disease from spillover, right? Um, but this is exactly the kind of stuff that I want to use to broaden the notion that we have of exhaustion, because yes, I think of things like loneliness thing. Um, and I'm not the only person. This is not, I'm not, I don't want to claim to be totally original on these things. Right. But it's not just loneliness. It's not just depression. It's not just anxiety. It's not just enervation. It's not just muscle tiredness. It's not any, just any of these things on its own. It is a general sense uh, including all of those things, but also even getting into areas like aesthetics uh, and certainly areas like economics that like, it's just spent. Like the way things are going are a not clear, not just not working, but like making them trying to keep them working as they are, or trying to make them work better in the terms that we have received better, you know, from the system itself, um, are contributing to our own exhaustion, are contributing to our own um, sickness. Right, the title of the piece that you're uh, reading from, the excerpt uh, is "Sick and Tired," comes from a very famous uh, quote from Fanny uh, Lou Hamer. Right, um, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's not a 2020 bore, 
uh, statement, right? That was like a 1960s statement. Um, this is, I think this feeling has only, has, has been around for a while, but it has accelerated almost exactly along those same charts that you can read of the great acceleration, right? Of the, of the dawn of our now globalized world and of the extraordinary uh, correlation between all of the sort of unique characteristics of contemporary capitalism with the unique characteristics of uh, anthropogenic climate change. And there's a few more points I want to make sure that we touch on before you Oh, go. sure. Sorry. I'm sorry if I'm over. No, no, no. You're not going too long. I'm going too long. Uh, so uh, zones of exhaustion, as you were just ca- calling them, you also point out in your writing that these are also conflict zones. Uh, is there yes, a lack right. of knowledge, a lack of information that the public has when it comes to climate change and uh, extraction, resource extraction, creating zones of conflict? Are we not reporting on the wars that are being caused by not only climate change, but globalization and neoliberalism as well? Yes. Uh, I think that's a, these, are, these are great questions. Again, <laughs> thanks. Um, yes. And I want to at least identify at least two different, maybe three different variants of what we are talking about here, because there is an old sort of version of a, of a, you could call it ecological or biological theory of like warfare that I'm not trying to like reiterate here, which is like, ah, when it's like certain, you know, climatological situations like are in, like are causally or will cause, you know, human conflict at X, Y, and Z conditions. Uh, there is like one grain of truth there uh, and like nine grains of omission. Uh, the one grain of truth is absolutely certain kinds of, you know, extreme weather, uh, especially heat and cold, uh, certain kinds of lack of water, uh, really obvious stuff will lead to resource conflicts. That, that seems very obvious. What gets left out of conversations like that, though, are at least two things. Uh, one is the more minor conflict, right? So when we think about zones of extraction, right, or sites of extraction, um, I talk about this in the book a lot, but like we could be thinking about mineral mining and there you see things like straight up uh, conflicts between workers and usually paramilitary forces or military forces or parapolice forces and police forces. Um, You can see things like yeah, you can see things like occupations for uh, resource grabs. That's sometimes true, sometimes not. Often it's about controlling like market, um, like who has which captive market. But we should also be thinking, you know, I talk not in this excerpt, but elsewhere, I think in that same chapter, like people like A.L. Weisman have done wonderful work. He, he works for uh, forensic architecture. Actually, that's, I believe he coined that term. Um, like you can actually see For example, he has this wonderful illustration of what he calls the conflict shoreline, um, which is not simply a a demarcation of sort of climatological change that occurs, again, I'm going to scare quotes this, but it's radio, so no one can see the scare quotes, um, naturally, right? But is literally the product of how uh, colonial lines on a map were drawn, how they are enforced, 
Uh, and this long aridity line, which is what, right, it's, it's a line between where things are dry and where things are, you know, nominally wet, um, right, this long aridity line doesn't follow natural logic. It follows the logic of, again, colonial cartography. It follows the logic of militarization. So this conflict shoreline, why is it called conflict shoreline? It's where most of those U.S. drone strikes take place between North Africa and basically Pakistan. Um, and so you can see that even something as seemingly benign, as seemingly apolitical as the fucking weather, right, or as the level of groundwater, or as the level of, yes, resources that you need for agriculture, things like this, even something as seemingly like, oh, that's really small bore, or that's just ecology, or that's just nature. Actually, no, this is something that is produced in a matrix of society and our ecological niche. And furthermore, to bring it back to one of the early questions, when people start looking into this stuff, uh, again, coming from places where they're not inherently hostile to capitalism, they're not inherently hostile to the status quo, they're not inherently hostile to liberal ideals, this, that, and the other. All of a sudden, if just from a sort of basic utilitarian point of view, they're just like, well, of course we're trying to do this for the most people, uh, right, uh, in the best possible way, all of a sudden become very radical and are like, holy shit, we really must deal with these problems as they are proliferating and causing tremendous hardship. You write that far from the shockingly persistent image of environmentalism as a principally middle-class elite or in the Bowdlerized cant of the Know Nothing Left PMC concern. Looking at these actually <laughs> existing conflicts reveals a picture in which struggle is widespread, more frequent in the global south and among the poor, north or south. And you also point out that surveys generally produce as rosy a portrait as possible. For example, many try to pin such findings on the COVID-19 pandemic, despite data showing, as Clifton admits, this researcher, the long-term nature of such trends. As problematic as this kind of inquiry can be, global burden of disease estimates highlight both the general epidemiological prevalence of disorders from depression to OCD across geographies. As you were just saying, these and related conditions are globally prevalent, as common in Malawi or Kenya, as in Germany or France. Is this then not only a global North, Western, yeah, middle class, rich, it's, white, it's first world problems. issue? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this, again, I can't claim credit for this insight, which came many, many, many decades ago. Um, although many other things, especially the punchier bits, I, I can about the sort of people who are obsessed with the PMC. Uh, <laughs> I find this shit very funny. There's many books that sort of present themselves as like Marxist, uh, I'm scare quoting that, and sort of left wing, but they're like, actually have very little to say about, you know, the owners of capital, the bourgeoisie, and they have like a million things to say about the professional managerial class. And it's uh, particularly, particularly ironically in this subject, the professional managerial class that is scientists, 
And I'm like, there's plenty to engage with critically and, and forcefully in these issues. But yo, y'all, like, they're not like lying to you. <laughs> like, and I teach critical theory for a living. I teach skepticism towards scientism, right? This is something I teach uh, for a living. Um, but like, no, they're not like just making it up as some kind of ideological pernicious like bullshit. Um, but yeah, to sort of step back a second, uh, yes. Uh, so you mentioned John Clifton there, right? He's not, in fact, I actually don't know what his intellectual background. He's the CEO of Gallup. Um, and he is the one who sort of, uh, it's very funny to lay out that survey where all these, uh, where all these trends are just going back forever. And you mentioned loneliness earlier. Um, all, kind, uh, all these sort of um, uh, psychosocial things that I've been mentioning, again, depression, OCD, et cetera, et cetera, um, just have been increasing over time. And that's even if you uh, take into account um, things like increasing diagnosis or yada, 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 all these excuses, COVID-19 is the one that has trotted out the most, right? It's like, oh, the pandemic caused this, the pandemic caused this. But then you look back and you're like, holy shit, no, this shit stretches way, way, way further uh, into the past. And suddenly you get a very different picture. You know, I borrow in, in the book the phrase from Mark Fisher, the privatization of stress, right? Where we have stress, we have stressors, we have these socially and ecologically, and we privatize them. We risk shift them. Resilience is one of the ways in which we do that onto individuals and communities. And we, it's kind of almost a grand social experiment uh, in this. And I, I, it's hard for me to even use the right terminology because I feel like everything I would say a could be mistaken as me endorsing it, but B just sounds so crazy. But yes, absolutely. Like it is, or uh, not that I'm being crazy, but that I'm sort of making a hyperbolic analogy. But it is, in fact, if you know the history, it just looks exactly like what um, colonial administrators and others used to do in, in the 19th and, uh, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th, and early 20th century, where they'd be like, okay. This is how much rice a peasant in X country needs. This is how much, you know, you can see this also in, in slavery ledgers and things like this, right? This is how much food a, a slave needs. Uh, and to keep working for about seven years, right? Um, and that sounds so over the top, so ridiculous. And then you start diving into some of the more policy-oriented literature. Now, here I'm not talking here about things like IPCC reports, but again, the sort of think tank literature, the kinds of stuff political parties will put out and will be thinking with. Uh, and yeah, some of this is even you can even find it in in you know, big mainstream books. And they'll be like, yeah, this is what people need to get by. It's not so. It's not so. They don't need so much. <laughs> you know, like, and if they're if they're good, resilient people, they can take this little bit, and you give them the power, and you you're empowering them, and you're giving them agency, and they'll, you know, and we all know this story, right? They'll lift themselves up by their bootstraps, um, and like, honestly, yeah, some people are super creative and super resilient to use that term, but the idea that this is what we are casting. And when I say we, I don't, you know, or I shouldn't say we, but what is being cast 
uh, to the majority of people, which includes most, I think, of your listeners, includes us, it includes lots of folks um, all over the world uh, are being basically told you can rely on these psychological dispositions. You should rely on them. In fact, to not rely on them might be deleterious. And if that probably sounds like a super familiar argument to people who are old enough to remember the Reagan years and remember, and then the Clinton years, right? And remember that this is the exact kind of language that was used to justify, say, welfare reform or um, further privatization of healthcare in, in, in countries where it wasn't already privatized, like the US. So, Yes, it becomes this kind of horrific situation in which um, exhaustion, or what I call exhaustion, yeah, it, it, it proliferates. It's everywhere. And I think this is one of the most important things and something I really want to underscore. Like for a lot of people who I hope read this book, um, I believe, or I should say, they are, are experiencing forms of domination, forms of repression, forms of deprivation, um, and forms of speed up and overwork and exhaustion that other people have been experiencing for a long time, but it's hitting a whole segment of folks who I think otherwise might think, oh, I'm like, this is just the way things are. Um, I have never experienced these things before, so this is confusing to me. And you really want to give people the tools and the sort of uh, frameworks to be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I, my misery, my exhaustion, my privatization of stress, to use that phrase from Fisher again, right, is, because, is to keep up a flagging labor productivity growth rate, is being, sorry, not labor productivity, so overall, whatever, productivity growth rate, um, total factor productivity, whatever, um, is to keep up with growth rate, is to keep up profit margins. Um, ma the like serve the like deliver food delivery service and the like, I, I talk about this like imaginary uh, Californian coder and her imaginary Filipina um, uh, maid in, uh, or domestic labor in the second chapter of the book. And one of the things that I, I hope people recognize there is when the, uh, the sort of, when the cheap labor is being exploited for the benefit, theoretically economic benefit of that sort of first world worker, well, you gotta look at the specific tiers and specific scenarios, because in the case that I'm describing there, which is by the way, the median case, or the average case, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, it's not. Right, it, uh, it's like uh, on paper it might look that way. Someone's disposable income might increase by X or Y or whatever it is, but that service is in fact not particularly desirable. It in fact is feeding into her own exhaustion, our own exhaustion, um, and a world which did not require it is closer to the world which people say they want to live in. 
And the other thing that I would add, because I had somebody that I was talking to this week, I was talking about how we're going to discuss climate change, and they said, well, you know, that's a first world problem. Uh, I'm more concerned about the fact that fascism may take over this country beginning in November November or in inauguration in That's January. a first world problem. Exactly. So, so, what what I, so what I told them was that the same areas that are experiencing, you know, increasing vulnerability to globalization and climate change, those are the exact same areas where you can also find growing fascism or are, yes. are these, is, is that the case that these areas that yeah. are seeking an alternative to fascism and authoritarianism are the ones that are at the heart of not only climate change, but globalization? Well, you mentioned, you know, it's funny. I would say yes, but, or, or yes, and again, dialectics, it's a trick, right? Um, uh, you know, you mentioned Berlant earlier, and they, the idea of a free-floating affect, right, which in some ways can be pre-political, I think, um, borrowing again this from not just Berlant, but people like CN9, others, right? Um, this is really important to me uh, as someone who also is, I think you know, like, is a as a theorist of what I call neo-fascism, which I discuss in the book at length because there is a, a again, one of my key concepts is, 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 this, is this concept of right-wing climate realism, which is like denialism is not really the right's big thing. The right's big thing is in fact things like, as we know, migration, authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera, um, various kinds of, of sort of gnarly patriarchal uh, civilizational identity balls. I don't know how you would call it. Um, but basically, right, uh, these to me are climate policies. So when I see things like fortress, when I see things like green-black alliances in Europe, which exists, right, uh, green parties and fascist parties working together, that to me is a great example of writing climate realism. They're like, great, we're going to make some, you know, we're going to decarbonize internally, will still externalize some of those problems to the countries that actually produce stuff uh, and will erect massive migration uh, policies to keep out the you know billion or so refugees, the hundreds of millions that are coming already and the billions that are coming down the road. Um, so yes, <laughs> in a nutshell, the idea of this as a, as a first world problem really blows my mind. Now, the way in which some of the older organizations like say, I don't know, the Sierra Club, like deal with conservation. Yes, that is a very first way of thinking about it. But, um, you know, I think I, I can't remember if it's in this section or, or also I mentioned the work of um, Joe martinez Allier and Ramachandra Guha and others uh, from way back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they really coined, they coined this phrase environmentalism with the poor, um, which was like, all the ways in which ordinary people across the global south um, fight about um, what, or in what they call ecological distribution conflicts, which is very different than the sort of image of the environmentalists we have in the north. Is this more about fighting about, well, are we going to have a mine here? Or are we not going to have a mine here? If we're going to have a mine here, or if we're going to have an oil well here, or if we're going to have you know, deforestation here. If we're going to change the agricultural patterns here, who's going to profit from it? Who gets to decide what that design is? Who gets to decide where the spill, uh, where any um, pollution goes? Who gets to decide whether this is a good idea or a bad idea? 
these kinds of fights are happening all whenever I hear people say there's nothing happening or there's no internationalism, I feel like, dude, there are hundreds of millions of people in like multinational peasant coalitions fighting this kind of shit out all the time. When you see what happened in with the coup in Bolivia, I talk about this in that same chapter of the resilience piece. Um, to me, that's a big, grand ecological distribution conflict. I.e., we are already in a massive global conflict about how these things are going to play out. It's just kind of like the news is only just kind of now reaching the north. And it's like imperative to me that we place this in the proper global context because that's sort of cutesy um, we'll do it a little bit here and not really worry about the rest and we'll set up some walls. I mean, that A isn't really going to work. And, but when I say it's not going to work, I don't mean everyone's going to die or like civilization collapses. What I mean is that is mostly an ideological story because a lot of people, in fact, huge numbers of people are either going to die, be affected, be locked into permanent levels of misery, whereas even a non-total reform program, and I am quite radical on this, right? So it's a lot, it's farther than what a lot of people I think would say is in a Green New Deal kind of program, but it, I'm not saying we have to all go eco-communist or, or the world ends, but a very, very far-reaching, it is basically the largest change in the global economy since the abolition of slavery. Uh, uh, and that's piecemeal as well, but we're going to get into every issue here, right? If we go down that route, like that is a way in which uh, 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 that down that road lies a path of relief or a path of rest, a path that is completely lateral, again, to use one of Berlant's words, um, to what a lot of politics imagined before we actually understood the intensity and the urgency of climate and also understood climate not to be a purely natural phenomenon, right? That it is imbricated between social systems and ecological or and ecological systems. And you can't tear the two apart. We have been speaking with social and political theorist Ajay Singh Ashaudhry, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, Sick and Tired Against Resilience, which is an excerpt from his upcoming book, which you can pre-order from Repeater Books. That book is The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World. Again, you can find that at Repeater Books. One last question for you, Ajay. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You cite cite 20th century German philosopher Theodor Adorno uh, once uh, quipping, there is humor because there is nothing to laugh at. You add (laughs) optimism in a world that is failing, intelligence in knowing it is the best because it is the only possible world. Creativity is adapting to that world, a belief system and cohesive life narrative that affirms the world as it is and asserts the value of each and every individual, even as it prepares many for mass death. Do we choose humor, optimism, creativity, some cohesive worldview which values life, and in doing so in an attempt to give life some coherence and happiness despite what is happening around us, are we all just whistling by the graveyard? Is it that is it that an instinctive 
part on us, on our part as humans, that when we know there is something approaching that is hazardous, like climate change, we naturally stay cheerful and hope for a good outcome. <laughs> are we making the choice to whistle by the graveyard, or is someone making that choice for us? Uh, <laughs> the latter. Um, it's 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 very funny. Uh, to, <laughs> I got a question about Adorno. Of course, I did. Um, you know, the, the joke that he's making there, uh, is, and this is, you know, Theodore Adorno, I think that's from, I want to say it's from Minimum Rally, but now I can't remember which text is from, from the 50s, right? Um, right, it's about the sort of, it's about sort of macabre humor, I guess you could say. Um, but yes, you laugh because there's nothing to laugh about. That sort of list of, you know, the optimism, the rational world, the area, that's actually all taken from the, the sense of coherent surveys that are de developed around, uh, you know, from Antonovsky, from Werner, and that are still used to this day, especially in all, again, all kinds of fields. Uh, yeah, I list them all in that piece. Um, and I don't think it's that we like choose or have a quote unquote natural instinct. Um, this is what we're being admonished. You know, the other thing I say there, right, is it's a prescription for ideology, right? Like we're being, you know, it's like you're going to the doctor and you're like, dude, I got a lot of problems. And he's like, here you go. And the script, instead of it being like you know, meds, the script is like, feel better about the world. You know, do some training where you understand that, in fact, there are no problems, um, that you, you just need to, like, have a different worldview. You just need to have a positive outlook. And this is you being told to whistle past the, it's not even past the grave, right? It's you being told to whistle past the house on fire that you can see is on fire and, and someone being like, you know, as that sort of online meme cartoon goes, right, this is fine. Or even this is natural. This could even, I just saw a headline this morning, uh, you know, we, you know, blowing past two might be good for people. You know, it's like, this is maybe even great. And you're like, I don't really think that this house being on fire is all that great, but you're being told this in increasingly shrill tones, right? And you're being told to laugh about it. You're being told to be optimistic about it. And if there's one thing good old Teddy uh, helps us remember is, uh, when someone's telling you something like that, it's so that you, um, what's the word? It's so that you don't think. It's so that you don't imagine. So that you don't believe that something else might be possible. And I really do think that that constriction and the increasingly shrill nature of that commandment actually to me is a sign of how little uh, this uh, sort of propaganda, if you will, is working today. And in fact, you mentioned earlier the sort of rise of both of right-wing movements, but there's also just a general, I talked about this in the book at length, um, many researchers have focused on this, there's just general discontent, right, inchoate, left, right, all over the place, all over the world. It maps almost perfectly onto um, a sort of sociological, ecological map that one can look at for climate impacts and, and other uh, phenomena. And if you are looking at that and you're telling people it's just fine, like that is, that is a recipe for disaster, not only from the point of view of getting genuine climate mitigation and adaptation done, but it is if you are general, if 
the person you were talking to in your in your um, previous question, right? The, the, the person who's like, I'm more concerned about fascism than this, right? It's a, it's a goal. It's a it's a first it's a first person the first world person's problem. Um, if you're really more concerned, if you're really very concerned about that, then you should be concerned about this. Uh, to paraphrase uh, uh, Adorno's old writing partner, uh, Max Horkheimer, if you're not willing to talk about, you know, well, the exact quote, right, is you're not willing to talk about capitalism. Anyone who doesn't, oh God, anyone who's not willing to talk about capitalism should remain silent or something like that about fascism. I think the contemporary version is anyone who's not willing to talk about uh, capitalism and socio—it's—it's it's, it, and socio-ecological catastrophe, irreversible, right? That it could go away and not have a dialectical recuperation. Anyone who's not willing to talk about that has really not a leg to stand on to talk about fascism today. Ajay, fantastic answer to this week's question from hell for you. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to having you back on the show. Everybody should go out and pre-order your book again from (laughs) Repeater Books. Uh, The book is The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World. And if you want to get a taste of it, check out his article at Baffler Magazine, Sick and Tired Against Resilience. Follow Ajay on Twitter at materialist underscore Jew. Thank you so much for being back on our show. We truly appreciate it. And we love all our listeners at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. A lot of them uh, actually show up here for our anniversary parties. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, that's so great. So, thank you so much for everything that you do, Ajay. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Chuck. All right, take care. Live from the United States where the press has the freedom to be propaganda, this is hell and a big part of that propaganda machine where, and the propaganda that it's force-feeding us every day that many may not see, read, or hear as propaganda, but it is. And that's the constant message that the establishment media feeds us, that capitalism will and must survive climate change, which is something you will not hear on This Is Hell or guests like Ajay. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listeners supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support on our most recent bonus patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell well the world is weird you know that i know that if you listen to the show you definitely know that and our lives in this world are really weird if you watched how someone else conducted their day or someone saw your day, I have little doubt they would find it really odd and you'd find their day really odd. My life's been weird for the last month because I've gone from intense total immersion in the holidays and celebrating with tons of people being around me all of the freaking time to being completely alone as my non-wife has been taking care of her ailing mother back in Michigan. Soon this past week's uh, Patreon, or sorry, so (laughs) soon. So on this past week's Patreon, I offered a sneak peek into the weird life of your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, when he is left home alone, and how it could have gotten a lot weirder because last week's rant is also about taking hallucinogens and my insights on dropping. Also, last week on our regular show, we spoke with Eric Umansky, who is now an editor at ProPublica, an organization he joined right after the last time he was on our show, way back in 2008. He was actually on twice that year, after never appearing before, and 
never appearing since until last week. So if you heard what Eric said on the show last week about why body uh, police body cameras don't work, and it's not the camera's fault, but the cops, you'll want to hear our talk with Eric from March 29, 2008, when we spoke with him about his then-just-posted Columbia Journalism Review article, Lost Over Iran, how the press let the White House craft the narrative about Tehran's nukes. While that talk may be from 2008, the exact same template is still being applied by the United States government and its foreign policy in misleading the public on Iran's nuclear weapon program. With Iran being further and further implicated in the Gaza war, do not be surprised to hear the Biden and Netanyahu administrations rolling out the same old narrative as Israel pushes for war with Iran. But the only way you can hear me rant about being alone and loneliness, which are two very different things, and how weird it can be for me being com- being alone at home and completely colorblind, which introduces its own world of unique challenges, as well as the 2008 talk with an award-winning journalist on how the press allows the United States government to get away with exaggerating Iranian nuclear weapons programs, is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell by doing so you also get a discount word uh, special code word for all of our stuff at this is hell.com when you click on support that gives you five dollars off each and every piece of this is hell merchandise but wait there's more as a patreon subscriber you get a sneak peek at every week's question from hell as we announce the following week's question from hell during our patreon podcast and on patreon you can post your own question from hell for me your bitter blind broke cap tooth radio show host I will not read these questions until they are uh, asked to me on the show by whoever is producing that week's Patreon. I then answer them extemporaneously, if you will. That's all on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, and we look forward to you all joining us because we are going to add a new subscribers-only feature, including Patreon patrons will now be getting the opportunity to vote on who they want as guests on the show. That's right, Patreon patrons are now going to be programmers of This Is Hell as a sign of our appreciation for their support at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell is a doozy. It is, what will it take to end the war in Gaza? Yeah, that was kind of a last minute one I had to come up with really quick. Hey. But pretty good one, right? Sometimes, yeah, pressure leads, I forgot what the quote is about pressure, something about diamonds. But uh, (laughs) um, Greg G on Patreon responds, a heartfelt TikTok video from Oprah and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. That is brutal. That's easy to believe would happen. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Old Grouch answers two things. First, a secretary of state that has a full functioning brain (laughs) and doesn't constantly blink. (laughs) I haven't noticed the blinking, but the blinking by blinking actually, yeah, it does. I love it. Uh, and second, the head of the Israeli government that isn't a neo-fascist. No. Yeah, would help. Yeah, it would help if our president wasn't experiencing dementia. Yeah. As well. yeah. Thanks, also, uh, Neo, do you really need Neo in front yeah, of Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think you can get dump the Neo. Right. It's the same old fascist. It's an excessive prefix. Yes. It's redundant. Uh, let's see. Mike the Giga Grouch responds about 300 years <laughs> <laughs> oh wow uh, ouch ouch what will it take to end the war in gaza dean t answers an actual god 
<laughs> wow. I should have expected these kind of brutal answers. Yeah. You did this. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, good old Jeff Dorchin responds, everyone in the world losing consciousness for a few days. Okay. Yeah. Right, a little time out. Mm. Uh, Jeff H. answers, Tommy has to wish Israel into the cornfield. <laughs> Wow, the children of the corn yeah. <laughs> reference? That's odd. It's uh, disturbing. I love our listeners. You'll <laughs> see. Says, all Israeli military contracts taken over by Alaska Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's oh. somebody from the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research right there. There you see. go. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, essential answers bootstraps. <laughs> I love the one word answer. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, um, public university comrade answers, end the war on Gaza with this one simple trick. You won't believe step three. Be sure to like and subscribe and comment below what world conflict you want to see us solve next. What uh, the hell is that? It sounds like a pitch for next week's question from hell. Yeah, it sure does. Mm-hmm. And then finally, Tom H. answers, Time to find out how persuasive those Klondike bars really are. (laughs) (laughs) This is a silly batch, folks. Thank you for those. Uh, I entered a contest, a radio contest one time, that was put on by Klondike bars. What would you do for one? uh, You had to do a 10-minute monologue on a topic. Okay. And I sent it to, I think it was Sirius XM was putting this on. And I sent it to them, and they told me that, you know, they sent me a really nice response back that they weren't going to make me one of the finalists, but they really appreciated it. And I couldn't tell if it was just computer generated or they actually did listen to what huh. I sent them. What'd you send them? Do you remember uh, what you talked about? No. I don't remember. I do remember uh, the original guitarist to OK Go producing it in my home when we put blankets all over the entire room to get rid of all of the echo. All your echo. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, they win their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You know what the topic was? What would you do for a Klondike bar? That's that, what it was. Were... And I talked about it for 10 solid minutes about what I would do for a Klondike Whoa. bar. And it wasn't, it was, it wasn't good for a Klondike bar. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was kind of taking a shot at Klondike bars at the same time. Yeah, I mean, so, they're asking for it. Yeah, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can post it on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. You can direct message it to us via X at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it in our Discord community. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get first crack at answering the question from hell every week at patreon.com slash thisishell. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. Will, what's Seb talking about this week? Uh, Seb cleans up some hellish misconceptions looking at the interplay between the Nazis and the Zionist movement in Germany during the 1930s. Yikes. Yeah. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This Week in Rotten History, on January 21st, 1951. 73 years ago this week, after several weeks of mysterious earthquake tremors and landslides at the extreme southeastern end of Papua New Guinea, 
which at the time was not yet independent, but still a United Nations trust territory administered by Australia. In other words, colonialism was continuing. The mile-high peak known as Mount Lamington, that sounds like also the creation of colonialism, exploded, belching smoke and ash to an altitude of 50,000 feet or more than 15 kilometers. And you would think people living on the Ring of Fire, the area in the Pacific Ocean that has some of the most volatile seismic activity that someone on the island nation would have made the connection between the earthquake-like tremors and the fact that they have an active volcano nearby. People who lived in the area were shocked because although scientists had been aware of the mountain's volcanic origin in the distant past, see, it had not erupted at any time in human memory, nor had folk tales or other accounts preserved stories about past eruptions. All right, then, I guess I stand corrected. So the local inhabitants were totally unprepared as a large chunk of the volcano collapsed and emitted a fast-moving red-hot pyroclastic flow that came hurtling down the mountainsides and into the villages, plantations, and rainforests below, destroying everything it touched. People caught in the path of the flow never had a chance. Almost 3,000 humans were killed. An inquiry later concluded that while scientific experts had tried to warn authorities of a possible imminent eruption. Their warnings were not acted upon, perhaps in part because local relief workers already had their hands full in dealing with an outbreak of whooping cough. That's right, the people of Papua were too busy fighting a virus to deal with the increasing likelihood they would be victims of a natural disaster. Kind of like us dealing with a pandemic and not having any time to address climate change. So the lesson here is, even if you are fighting a deadly pandemic, do not stop paying attention to the world around you because it's probably as dangerous, if not more so, than the virus you're fighting. Also in Rotten History on January 25th, 1900, 124 years ago this week, the Senate in the state of Virginia passed a bill requiring that black and white passengers be housed in separate cars aboard trains. 35 freaking years after the end of the Civil War supposedly freed the slaves in former slave-holding Virginia, they did not want to have to travel with people who reminded them of their former slaves, probably because they, the shared memory of slavery made the white people feel uncomfortable when the black people were staring at them. You know how we can't have white people being uncomfortable about the history of the racism in the United States? I mean, just ask Nikki Haley and the anti-woke crowd who don't want America's racist history taught in our schools. The legislation followed a series of incidents in which white Virginians, including Governor J. Hogue Tyler, had objected to having to share space on trains with black passengers. And you gotta wonder if anyone in the press at that time asked the governor, why don't you want to share space on trains with black passengers? Tyler would eventually sign the bill into law, and it would soon be followed by similar legislation applying to most other public spaces in Virginia. So it's the emergence of the whites-only policy. The segregation uh, laws would remain in force until President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is a reminder that many on the right want to end civil rights because giving rights they enjoy to people who do not look like them 
makes a lot of racist white people really uncomfortable. Now that's Rotten History, and this is how Will, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show? Uh, our next guests will be Heidi Matthews and Tanya Sarisir, who will... Uh who co-wrote the Counterpunch article, Bombing Gaza Isn't Fighting Sexual Violence. Heidi Matthews is an assistant professor at Osgood Hall Law School at York University in Toronto. She is currently leading an interdisciplinary research project studying colonial genocide. Tanya uh, Sarisir is a reader in feminist theory at the School of Social Sciences, Birkbeck College, University of London. She is author of Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape, and Narrative Politics. Have you heard of the hashtag, Me Too, Unless You're a Jew? No, but that sounds kind of vile. Uh, yeah, we will be discussing that on yeah. tomorrow's show. And Thanks. just so you know the kind of people who are promoting that kind of phrase, it's, uh, what's her name, Sandberg from, Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook. Oh, yeah. And Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton, huh? Mm-hmm. Who knew? I think um, everybody. <laughs> uh, also on tomorrow's show, <laughs> Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. This week, Jeff recalls the trauma of reliving the trauma of revisiting the trauma queen. <laughs> and finally, and then finally, our final guest of the week will be Jack Norton and uh, Lydia Pellet Hobbs, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Go Straight to Jail. The New Geography of Mass Incarceration, a piece that was also written with Judah Shept. The article is in an excerpt form, or the, sorry, the article is an excerpt from The Jail is Everywhere, Fighting the New Geography of Mass Incarceration. Thanks. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind Broke gap radio show Live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz This is how office hours are happening This week As they do every week Every Wednesday And this, and they always happen at the bar downstairs from us Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue In Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood This is how office hours It's our meet and greet that's really a drink and think After two weeks of freezing temperatures With long stretches of sub-zero temperatures And brutal wind chill The forecast this week is for 40 degree weather, which is the perfect temperature for hanging around the fire pit in the beer garden out back. So look for me out there and join us every Wednesday, this and every Wednesday during This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>